Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our special guest is David Kedvi, a podcaster, writer, author of Design for Hackers and The Hard to Start. And starting new projects is the topic for today's episode. Before we get started, I'd love to thank our amazing regular sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Balsamic. Dare to try new ideas and discover the best solutions without learning fancy design tools. Just drag, drop, and resize elements into your wireframes. It's that easy. Try it free for three months at balsamic.cloud, entering the code UIBREAKFAST. Hi, David. Hello, Jane. Uh, thank you so much for having me. We are absolutely thrilled, and we have such a philosophical topic for today. And it's oh, it's more exciting to learn for, about that from you, because you started as a very much practitioner teaching hackers to design many years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I wrote a book several years ago called Design for Hackers, and uh, now I guess I'm kind of a, a recovering designer. I, I'm, I'm like a writer now, which is really strange, and we can get into why that's so strange, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, now I'm, I'm much more interested in how, how do creative entrepreneurs uh, make it? How do they find their creative voice? How do they uh, find the right mindset to make that creative work happen? Uh, and you know, what what's the current landscape of monetization for creators, things like that. Yeah. So tell us a bit more what you do these days. Uh, you run a podcast, you write books for a living. Uh, what else? Um, how does it work for you? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like I said, I, I'm really, uh, I'm really passionate about creative entrepreneurship, not so much just regular entrepreneurship, but actually creative entrepreneurship, that thing where you're finding this thing that only you can do and you're finding some way to make a living at it so that you can keep doing that thing. Um, and so a few of the ways that I explore that topic is one through my podcast, which is called Love Your Work. I speak to a lot of really accomplished creators on that, like James Altucher uh, and Seth Godin. I talk to uh, behavioral scientists and neuroscientists, people like Dan Ariely. I also talk to uh, various creators like dancers, uh, chefs, screenwriters, musicians, and I also explore the current state of media and how it is that people who create things and put things out into the world, what are the various ways that, that they can make money doing that? And uh, to supplement all of that, I also write books, wrote Design for Hackers, and then roughly in like six months wrote three books or published three books. Um, one's called The Heart to Start. Another is How to Write a Book. And another, the most recent one, is about a blockchain technology that I'm excited about called uh, Steemit. Wonderful. Uh, so you have, you're living the dream, actually. You are making a living off uh, something that you call creativity. Uh, let's start with that. Uh, how would you define that, you know, difference between being a craftsman and selling your time and uh, being an artist, a creative person who is selling something totally intangible? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we were talking just before this and and you were like, Hey, have you done very much design work lately? And I don't know if I'm outing you if I say this, but I was like, yeah, I haven't actually <laughs> done any design work for clients since I was writing design for hackers or, or just, just before then. 
And it sounded like you seem a little jealous of that, <laughs> which, which I can't blame. I can't, I, I, I can't blame you because I personally didn't enjoy so much the, the doing the design work for clients. Some people really have that, that, uh, that inclination, like they love to get into the dirt and, and, and do that sort of thing. But then there's others amongst us who we've always felt compelled to create. And then when it came time to uh, pick a profession, it was like, oh, I can get paid to do creative stuff uh, doing this this work uh, as like a graphic designer, which then becomes a web designer and becomes a UI designer, etc. Uh, you know, that's kind of the way that I ended up, uh, ended up in it. But I think it was really in the process of writing design for hackers, which was this thing that kind of accidentally came out of writing on the web about design, uh, you know, getting, getting a book deal from, from my blog and then really digging in and trying to make this thing that what that really had my own DNA in it. And it was really a, a painful process in a lot of ways, but at the same time, when the smoke cleared on that process, I was like, wow, that, that feels great. Uh, I really want that to happen again. Like, I think that that's, <laughs> you know, that's what I want my whole life to be. And so, uh, yeah, I haven't really worked for clients since then. And, you know, some of the ways that I uh, have managed to do that involves uh, a little bit kind of like what you were talking about with Patrick McKenzie, the leveling up. It's like I had some passive revenue from affiliate stuff from various blogs I had set up, but then it was constantly uh, along with that, trying to experiment with different things and find that right combination between, Oh, I'm really curious about this. I'm really passionate about this thing. And it resonates with other people and it's, it's going to make money somehow. So I think that that is um, kind of one of the main differences is that when you're working for a client, you really have to, you have to, in some ways, in a lot of cases, put your so-called voice off to the side and uh, and help meet their objectives, which can be a useful learning experience regardless of, of what you're doing. But when you're really trying to create something that's uniquely yours, then it's really all about, okay, what what makes me tick? What makes my blood pump harder? Uh, what's the thing that's interesting to me and what's the thing that only I can do and trying to put that into the world and get an understanding of, okay, who is that connecting with and how can I double down on that? And, and how can I uh, turn that into some kind of, uh, some kind of money? Oh, you're raising so many interesting points uh, just in those few sentences uh, that you said. There are so many facets to that. I found that um, the, the perfect uh, way is to balance those because I get sort of uh, sort of like dope feeling from making a specific person a client happy with, with the outcome solving mm -hmm. their problems and getting rewarded very well financially for that that's also very you know very healthy to, to be <laughs> rewarded <Yeah>. financially <laughs> on the other hand it's it's really great to publish something that matches just your standards i found kind of gold middle in making SaaS products because you're expressing yourself at the same time solving the problems for your audience and trying to make money, like all kinds of challenges mm. <laughs> around the place. So it really, I think it depends on, on the person very much. And But I'm so happy to see that you found yourself in 
that, that pleasure in publishing things. Yeah. So w- with the SaaS stuff, you kind of find that you're able to um, follow your own curiosity or or give something a sense of your own quirkiness, and and then it's a, a matter of uh, you know, who's that going to work with? And, and, and you're not depending upon pleasing one particular person. You're, you're depending upon pleasing, being able to please some subset of people that are willing to pay a certain amount of money that will, uh, help you maintain that is kind of how you're thinking about it. Yes, absolutely. So both starting new things, uh, a lot of us are going to daily work or doing their daily freelancing or consulting, but we all have those ambitious ideas up the sleeve that we never get to implementing. And your latest book, uh, The Hard to Start, uh, tackles just that. Uh, so how did you decide to write a book on that topic? Yeah, I think, well, in many ways, I wrote the book for myself, which I think is a great <laughs> way to... Uh, to choose what what work to do is is like what do you want to learn what do you personally struggle with how uh, what what would you like to help other people with as well and so one of the things that I discovered about myself uh, especially during my time in Silicon Valley was that I I went on on my own it was about eleven years ago yesterday actually or today would be the first day that I was on my own eleven years ago and you know I just woke up to this vastness and I felt like, oh, I have this great opportunity to follow whatever it is that I want to create. I had decided that I was going to, um, you know, give myself a year or so to just explore things. And, but I just found myself very often paralyzed or making excuses about why I couldn't do a thing when I clearly had no excuse. There was plenty of, uh, of time. I had, I bought myself the time I had cashed out some money from my retirement portfolio and everything to, to take this opportunity to try to go for it. And I kept hearing this, this advice that seems very simple and you still hear it all the time. People would tell me just get started. And I think that that's really great advice if you can follow it. Yes, get started. Get started yesterday, for goodness sake. But it's almost like, in a way, it's almost like telling a depressed person not to be depressed in some cases. Because I, <laughs> right. I, think, I think there's this divide. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing that I've noticed in a lot of guruship or uh, advice that you hear out there is that there's these people who have accomplished things and... Uh, you know, if you really dig deep on how they did it, they kind of already had the confidence to do it. They didn't really have the too many things holding them back from a mental programming standpoint of, oh, I can't do this or it's not, uh, you know, I'm worried about the criticism and, and stuff. And not that they don't struggle with those things, but they're able to work through it. And meanwhile, there's this whole huge market of people who are having these fantasies about doing things and then maybe they get caught up in just consuming content about it over and over again. I know that was something that I did a lot. I was like, wow. I, one day I realized like, wow, how many times do I have to hear just get started before I'll actually do it? And so um, yeah. what was that that you started back then? How long did it take you to, to dare to create? Well, I, I think it was, it was one of these skills that I... Uh, developed 
and that I continue to work on to this day is because we think about starting like, oh, you're going to start your one company that's going to be super successful, but it usually doesn't work that way. It's usually like a lot of different starts. Like you, you start some things that don't work and you start some things that do work and you start some side projects. And on top of that, you're also starting every single day is, is like maybe you, you don't want to abandon this project and now you've got to get your butt into the chair and, and get yourself to start on working on it today. Uh, in addition to yesterday and the day before that. And so there's a lot of these opportunities uh, to to get started. So for me, uh, I think, you know, one of my key starts was when I started my blog uh, about 14 years ago. I was sitting mm-hmm. in a cubicle and I had been <laughs> wanting to, you know, want, I had been reading these blogs, blogs like Seth Godin's and I just felt very intimidated and I finally somehow got myself to do it. But that wasn't the end of it. I mean, it was years and years and years. And, and like I say, I still struggle with uh, these mental barriers that pop up of, um, you know, maybe you have a thought of, or an idea and you think, oh, that, that, that'll, that'll never work or, or you just ignore it. You don't even notice that you're thinking the thought. But if someone were to tell you, that thought you'd say, Oh, I was just thinking that now that's how comedians work, right? Is you go see a comedian and you're like, wow, I had never thought of, I mean, I had thought about it that way. I had thought that exact same thing, but I never put it into words. And uh, so there are Mm -hmm. these, these fantasies that we're, we're constantly having that we, that we just end up ignoring just as, as one example. And then there's also these things like perfectionism. Uh, There is the fear of, of criticism and uh it's really a a big battle between our our present selves and our our ideal selves um there's even a a phenomenon in psychology called self uh self discrepancy theory Mm -hmm. basically yeah Mm -hmm. and it basically states there's three different facets to this our domains of the self there's our actual self, there is our ideal self, and there is our ought self. And when we normally think of procrastination, things like, oh, I procrastinated on working on this logo for a client, or I procrastinated on taking out the trash, or I procrastinated on studying for this test, that's usually a conflict between our actual self and our ought self. Our ought self is is what obligations we feel that we have, the things that we feel that we should do. And we have that conflict and that causes procrastination, which I think is sort of traditional procrastination, which uh, conjures up certain emotions uh, such as, as kind of anxiety or, or fear of uh, fear of punishment, things like that. But the funny thing is we, we think of procrastination with these these things like studying for a test or taking out the trash, but often we are actually also procrastinating not just on the things that we clearly don't want to do because who wants to take off the trash? It's not fun. <laughs> but we also procrastinate on the things that we do want to do, the things that we fantasize about doing, our dreams, our aspirations. We, we practice procrastination on our aspirations. Um, and that is the, that's like an actual ideal conflict. And when those things are out of alignment, what we are actually like and what we aspire to be like uh, then that can really make us feel depressed or that can make us feel hopeless. Uh, and that is, I think that requires a completely different 
set of techniques for uh, actually making action happen. So in your book, you're dissecting a dozen of ways people uh, can procrastinate, uh, but other practical techniques to combat those those self-sabotaging um, things. Yeah, so some of the practical techniques, I think, I mean, first I think it's helpful to see some of the mental errors that we typically make when mm -hmm. we are procrastinating on the things that mm -hmm. we really dream of doing. I think one of the biggest things is that we just tend to dream a lot bigger than what we're currently capable of. And by, by that, I mean, say, you know, say we've played a little bit of guitar and we think about recording this album and, and then what, what happens? We, we think, well, I mean, that's just too much work. I, I'll never get to that level. And so I think scaling back in, in very many different ways, uh, actually, It really, really helps defeat that procrastination. I, I think by now, most people have seen the video of Ira Glass from This American Life talking about the gap, that we get into something, some sort of creative endeavor, whether it is uh, illustration or painting or writing, because we're, we have good taste. We, we can see the, the, the work that's done well, and we want to be able to do work that's like that. But naturally, there's going to be a gap. We cannot achieve that level until we do a lot of really bad work. You, you cannot be good at something without first being bad at it. Even, even these myths of talent, you know, Mozart didn't have his most famous piece until well, well into his, his career. And, you know, he, he practiced obsessively. It, it wasn't just talent. Um, and so that's just one of the ways that we can have this mental error that prevents us from starting. And it really just makes us feel dejected. It makes us feel disappointed in ourselves. It makes us, it can make us feel depressed even. And this is in the research, uh, to have that discrepancy between our actual and our ideal, which is, is, is often, Uh, caused by these these high these unrealistically high standards, and so that can manifest itself in a few ways. One way it can manifest itself is just in the the scope of the project that we imagine doing. You know, we want to write this novel, but we haven't really done a lot of writing before. So we sit down and we start writing, and we're like, "Oh, this is impossible." Well, what if we think about okay, someday we're going to write a novel, but today. I'm just going to write a hundred word story, you know, something very simple, very small. And, you know, in doing that, you have to kind of swallow your, your pride, swallow your ego a little bit because your ego is really there the whole time protecting yourself. This is the, these, these mental errors are really products of the ego as a, a protection mechanism. Why does the ego Uh, want us to dream about this big project that we can't possibly complete with our current skill set, it's because it feels better to sit and fantasize about doing that thing than it is to get started and move forward and fail at it, which is uh, inevitable in the beginning. Mm -hmm, definitely. You know? <laughs> so that's just, that's just one of the ways that this, this um, sort of 
grandiose thinking or uh, thinking beyond our own abilities can actually make us feel strangely good about not doing this thing that we dream about doing. So the tip number one is super easy, is to start something small first and to iterate that supporting your earlier ideas that the success never happens overnight. It's always a series of smaller starts, smaller projects that leads to large ones, right? Yeah, I think that that's a good way of putting it. And for myself, uh, I, I find habits to be very useful for that as well, is to just make mm-hmm. a really tiny habit. So for myself, uh, you know, strangely, I, I wrote Design for Hackers. It came out in 2011. 2000, late 2015, early 2016, you know, two and a half, almost three years ago, I came to this realization that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, <laughs> Odd, this is, you know, six years after having a, a book come, after starting to write a book, to, you decide that you want to be a writer, and so I really decided to double down on everything. I cleared out my apartment in Chicago. I moved down to Columbia, where I live right now, because I, I knew that it was going to take a while to figure out kind of the business model of that, and I and I, and I wanted the the time and the space and be able to get into a routine to to be able to write. Um, so early on in that process, I started off with a tiny habit. It's like, okay, let's commit the first hour of the day. Now, this, is my, this was my job. I, I was dedicated entirely to this. So you might be somebody, you only have 10 minutes, but that's something, you know. Commit the first hour of the day and keep doing it. And then I started shipping, you know, a 500-word medium post every day. And I've come to the realization lately that now I'm doing longer projects that I can't necessarily do in a single session in a single sitting. And I'm realizing that what I was doing that entire time was trying to change my identity, was trying to uh, believe and see myself as a writer. That if I didn't sit down and do that habit every day, I would be, I was scared that I would, uh, that I would not be a writer. And so now I do I do still write every day, but I can work on these longer projects where I don't necessarily have to be shipping every day. I can I can I can envision the entire bigger project because I have sat down and done that uh, habit, and I've done that shipping every single day as well. And now I can see from the top down uh, much bigger projects, and I can feel secure in myself that I'm not fooling myself that I am a writer and that I can complete this uh, thing that I envision. So I think that that's actually an important component is being a, if you should be able to see yourself complete, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever your level, whatever level you're at, uh, it should be either you can see completing it. You can envision how that happens or it's just slightly out of your reach. Uh, I find that that is a very good way to approach any sort of um, development of craft is to be able to make these smaller things and to be able to see in your mind what it's going to be like from start to finish. And over time, you eventually build up to those bigger dreams that you have. You can make that feature film. You can write that screenplay. You can... Uh, write that novel. You can open up that restaurant. 
you know, it's going to, it's going to stretch you, but you've at least got the practice behind you. You have your, your, you've changed your identity through your actions. Absolutely. And it's not just about the creative body of the work, but every piece that you ship is surrounded by that, you know, infrastructural work that is about technical side of things, you know, publishing, knowing how to set up your blog, knowing how to then promote it, uh, somewhere knowing how to tweet how to market how to sell and every time you ship again you practice this whole round of work and uh, all these technical limitations become familiar process instead so you feel more and more comfortable doing that i 100 percent agree i think that's that is a a perfect insight because yeah that is something that can hold us back and it's something that often experts take for granted when they tell a beginner like, oh, yeah, just, just get started. Uh, that there are all these little details that actually make something possible. Like this is something that I recommend to people who think about self-publishing um, because I've really got caught the self-publishing bug. I'm, I'm, I'm publishing a lot, self-publishing a lot of books. Some of them are smaller. Um, but, what I did before I started self-publishing, because I, I went from traditional to self-publish, and that was uh, a, a big uh, leap or a, a difficult transition to make. But the thing that I did was I just went ahead and took 500 words that I had written on something, and I went on a KDP, and I published it on Kindle. I put it under, mm-hmm. a, di- I, I put it under a different name. Um, oh, interesting. I, I even put it under a different name, you know, because I didn't, I was, because I was, I just was nervous about putting my own name on it. And that's, that can be a useful technique as a pseudonym sometimes. And so I put the, I put it out there. I played around with it a little bit is like, and then I deleted it. <laughs> and, but by going through that, I really taught myself a lot of the things that would have normally just added to the, uh, mental weight of getting a book out there, <laughs> you know, cause normally I think that what a lot of people do is they'll go write, they'll write the book and they're like, okay, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go publish my book now. And they go on to KDP or something. And they're like, Oh wait, I got to get in this format. And wait, there's keywords here. And what about these categories things? What, what about all this? And it's the first time they've seen the interface, you know, it's the first mm-hmm. time they've gone through the whole thing. And so their brain you know, I believe self subconsciously their brain has been thinking the entire time, like, Hey, we don't actually know how to, you know, we don't actually know these other details. What about this stuff? And I think that just adds to the cognitive load of doing something that's already really hard. And I think that that's, uh, useful in, in so many things. If there's some sort of technical detail that you can do a smaller project with and learn, and then that little technical detail is going to carry over into some larger project, then I, I think that that's extremely valuable. Actually, it just reminds me the other day, I was, I was talking to uh, Nathan Barry of uh, ConvertKit, now Seva. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and he had this amazingly successful uh, publishing business and then he he really wanted to have this software as a service business, and he really doubled down on on ConvertKit now Seva. And uh, you know, if he didn't have all this experience with all these other details of running a software as a service company, such as the marketing of these books or or selling uh, selling an info product, which I I think is is far more simple than than selling a, a SaaS product. Uh, you know, if he didn't have that practice. 
he would have been at a huge disadvantage. And this is something that I, I see really often with uh, with developers who they, they want to make a SaaS product or they, they, they make some kind of software product and they don't have experience with any of the marketing side. They haven't built an audience. They haven't done any blogging. And they're kind of wondering like, hey, how do I get anybody to use this or, or, or notice it? Any endeavor you take is going to have this this cornucopia of skills that you need to stack on top of each other and so find opportunities to uh to exercise all those little skills i think i'm so glad that you brought dathan barry's name because i was i was uh, contemplating bringing him up anyways because his book authority inspired me in uh, authority and, and the podcast interviews surrounding that that i came across that inspired me to to write my first book which was a completely not success in terms of uh, commercial <laughs> purpose, uh, but well, I want to hear more just, about that. You, what did uh, you he, learn? <laughs> uh, he just made it transparent on the podcast. It was his interview with, with someone, vice versa. Someone was interviewing him, and he was like, "But a book is a perfect way to promote yourself. You know, to teach people, and teaching people is a great way to establish yourself as an authority." And I was driving. Um, I was driving uh, long distance uh, alone and <laughs> I was pregnant with my second son <laughs> and I was thought like, wow, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a book. And I, I purchased his book Authority and took it as a hand guide to to step-by-step publishing, doing all these technical steps. And later down the road, when I had more solid understanding of who my audience is and what exactly I should better write about, by then, all these technical details were done at least once, and mm-hmm. none of this technical resistance was in place. And that's a wonderful place to be at. Well, yeah, I, I'm really curious. I'd love to learn more about it. It sounds like you don't feel like that first book was, was a success financially, but I'd love to hear more about the stuff that you learned and how that made your next book uh, better. Uh, I learned, well, one of the, my biggest takeaways is that you shouldn't try to sit on two chairs and write for two audiences at once. Mm. <laughs> uh, the, the book's title was uh, Mastering App Presentation. So I was mostly working on mobile UX back then and presenting mobile UX on mobile devices, like in pretty pictures and presentations. It's, it's really an art in itself. So I wanted to write about that. And I tried to make the book for people who present their work to clients but also to make it useful to people who, you know, present in the app store. And it was just being so vague and spending extra time being vague and applicable to everyone instead of making it focused, vice versa. So that was a wonderful product uh, lesson to learn. <laughs> yeah, and I think that uh, th- that's something that I'm always learning myself. And that's something that I... Well, I'm still I'm still learning is that, uh, you know, actually with my first book, Design for Hackers, uh, I got kind of lucky in that I, I did write something for a particular audience, but it was kind of an accident. So there were so <laughs> many other book ideas that I had in between that book and 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 my newer books that uh, that I look back on. I'm like, wow, I really just didn't know. It was ironic. I kind of like didn't know uh, didn't know what I what I was doing. In, in some ways, but I've, I've been learning by continuing to do. And so now that I have done this self-publishing thing a number of times, I've got a few different books that I can play around with and try different techniques with. And that all feeds into my own knowledge about publishing and that will make my future books 
uh, better in at least one way. Whether they'll be more successful or not is 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 hard to say. But I, I'll, I will certainly know more going into the process. Definitely, definitely. And for some reason, authority had an amazing outline of steps how to technically produce a book, like how to set mm -hmm. up your marketing list, etc. But for some reason, it missed a very important component that Amy Hoy has in her framework, which is having an audience and researching their pain and making something useful for them. For some reason, that trio of components just totally lacked from the book. So I had to learn it down the road uh, with a hard lesson. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like some people just have a sense for that in a way that they almost, you know, it's almost like, um, oh, what what's that uh, that phenomenon called uh, where and experts don't even know what they know in a way? Um, <laughs> and I feel like it, it's people have different approaches towards these things. And that's that's one of the things that I've learned is that this this top down approach of start with the market. And then just go ahead and follow that and you come up with this thing. Uh, as great of advice as that is and as great as some people are able to follow it, it doesn't work very well personally with my creative process. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually works better for me to produce work and to get it out there and then to observe, uh, oh, who is this resonating with? Oh, what kind of person is that? What if I went deeper on trying to make this for that person. And so it can be a part of the process. Actually, there was a book that I read recently by a guy named David Gallinson, and it's called um, Young Old Masters Young... Uh, I can't remember exactly what the what the name is. I'll, link to, I'll, I'll find it and link to that. And show sure, us. sure. And I, I, I spoke to him on my podcast, um, and he studies painters, He's an mm -hmm. economist who studies painters. And one thing he's found is there's two different approaches to, to creating things or as, as a painter. One is you're a conceptual innovator. You come up with an idea and you execute it. Andy Warhol would be a great example of a conceptual innovator because Andy Warhol might have hi hired people to, to actually do the work. Like, oh, here's the idea. Okay, you people go execute it. Uh, Picasso was also a conceptual innovator. Picasso you know, reinvented painting a number of different times and it was about a concept. And he, he, he would say, I don't paint, uh, to search. I, I paint to, f I don't find, I don't search. I find, I don't know exactly the, the, the quote, but the, the flip side of that is the, um, experimental innovator. And so Cezanne, the, pre the predecessor to Picasso is, was an experimental innovator And for, for Cezanne, he wouldn't even sign most of his paintings. Like his paintings weren't, he wasn't producing a product when he was producing a painting. The, the, the painting itself was his exploratory process. And he was constantly up until, up until the day that he died, exploring, trying to uh, f find something. And he was doing it through the process. So I think that it's really helpful to understand those two different approaches and to maybe understand that maybe you lean towards one versus the other and to go ahead and embrace that is that, oh, well, maybe I don't have the perfect name for my podcast yet. Uh, I'll just put a few episodes out and see what kind of feedback I get. And then I'll come up with a name. You know, you can 
make some of this definition stuff part of the creative process. That's another approach to take. And I think that there's just some people who are more conceptual and they can they can come up with this target market and and position positioning for the product before they do a single thing. And mm-hmm. I don't really work that way. That's great to hear because it's an entirely different approach and in 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 some circles that could be called, you know, fishing for an audience. Uh, so the key part is to combine that piece of advice together with building small things first so that you can start, fail, and iterate on that and learn about your audience more, right? Wait, and, and I'm actually a little ignorant of this this idea of fishing for an audience. So when people say that, is that like a, a do they mean that as like a bad thing? Um I would say it's it's not a great thing in, in my books because, for example, I see that a lot as a UX designer with uh, software products. And mm-hmm. software products are nearly not even close to the industry you are in. They're not creative. They're aimed to be practical. So they build something because of their great idea and then having no idea where to find people who will buy it, why would they need it, and they start fishing for an audience. So that is yeah, the, probably yeah. the proper term. Uh, so that has nothing to do with creativity and uh, exploration. That mo- mostly has to do with some time spent in vain rather than researching up front. However, if that was small enough, that can be a learning experience. So that's a good side. Yeah, I think it's a, it sounds to me like it's a, a balance. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's something that a person can do to avoid the hard work of you know, talking to people and getting feedback which is sometimes a painful thing to do. Um, but at the same time, it can be a route to, uh, to really original ideas because it, it takes your own viewpoint and injects it into a thing. And I, I mean, I, I do think that creating software products is, is, is creative and artistic uh, or, <laughs> and, and can be. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, sometimes it's not always like the right step-by-step way to do things. But mm-hmm. sometimes great things can can come out of uh, trusting your intuition. I, I mean, I don't really, I, I can't show you an equation that proves that or anything, but <laughs> it's something that I believe. Absolutely. And, and your career proves that, that you followed your calling and your method works for you, which is amazing. Which proves once again that everybody is different and everybody's work is different. Yeah, I, I do very strongly believe in this idea of following your curiosity and i think that Mm -hmm. it's a weird thing that in our industrial culture that people are a little ashamed of their curiosity or they're they're taught to be ashamed of their curiosity i mean i often get people coming to me saying you know i'm just so interested in all these different things and i and i just get distracted i start working on one thing and then i get interested in this other topic and i go towards that and they feel so bad about it uh, and they're trying to wrangle that curiosity in and, and actually execute something, which, you know, that's important too, to be able to execute something. But if you I- embrace and are, and are accepting of your curiosity, I have for so long just uh, followed what I heard in the uh, Steve Jobs Stanford commencement address, which I know is a little trite to... Uh, you know, to talk about Steve Jobs because everybody does, but it's, it, it's just, I just found so much truth, especially 11 years ago when I was going on on my own. I just watched that video over and over again, and so much of it rang so true to me. And, and one of the things that rang so true to me was this idea 
of following your curiosity, trust your heart and trust that it's, it's going to all work, work out in, in, in the end. And one of the great stories that Steve told in that speech was about dropping in on calligraphy classes and how it had no practical value in his life, but he was just fascinated about it and, and, and engrossed in it. And it, it wasn't until years later that he was working on the Mac that he took all of that beautiful, all those beautiful typographic principles like optical spacing and kerning, and he worked that into the typography that was on the Mac. And you know, as he says, probably no personal computer would have optical typography if it, if it wasn't for that. You know, so you, you don't really know where these things are going to come from. And one of the wonderful things about following something that you're curious about is that that makes it so you can work harder on it than anybody. Um, and it's not one of these kind of follow your passion and everything's going to work out things. For me, one of the reasons I follow my curiosity is because that's the only way I can find the fuel to motivate myself through those inevitable, very difficult parts of bringing anything into the world and making something real is that, yeah, you're going to have days where it seems like you're never going to figure this out and your work is not up to your, the standards that you have in your mind. And, you know, to get through that, what better fuel is there than being very curious about this thing that you're working on? Absolutely. That is wonderful advice. Thank you, David. I think we need to wrap up for today, even though this topic can be probably explored for another day or two in our I'm conversation. Sure. Where can people find you and your awesome work online? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks again so much for having me. Uh, the people who are listening to this podcast probably listen to podcasts. So uh, a good place they can find more of my work is to listen to my podcast, which is called Love Your Work. Uh, I would recommend uh, Seth Godin, episode 77, is a, is a wonderful one. You're also going to find a lot of uh, other wonderful creators and entrepreneurs, and we're always also on the cutting edge of how is it that creative work is monetized and how can you make it as a creative entrepreneur. Also, mm -hmm. uh, check out Cadaby.net. I have my income reports on there. I, I'm trying to figure this out myself. And so I share as I go along on there. I'm also very active on, on Twitter and Instagram at Cadavy. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time once again, David. And I hope your creative work flourishes. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great day. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, Please leave a review on iTunes. It will help other people discover this podcast.